2: When Bertha Patenode was growing up in the 1950s, the main road in her town doubled as an international border. American Customs was like right here, and the Canadian was right here, and right here was Canusa
3: Avenue, Canada and USA. So they called it Canusa.
2: Canusa Avenue runs east-west, literally right on the line between Vermont and Quebec. Bertha grew up on the Vermont side, in Beebe Plain, near Derby Line. She says crossing the street and the border used to be a regular thing. My mother
3: would send us to the store, which was in Canada. We'd cross the road, which would be in Canada, go to the store, come back, report on the American customs, go back on the Canadian side, walk home, because there was a sidewalk, and then cross when we'd get home. Well, we left the convent. We'd come up the hill to come into Derby Line, go to the post office. They'd give us the mail, and we'd walk back to the house.
2: That's Bertha's friend, Simone. The convent was where she went to school, for first and second grades. Simone's parents were Canadian, and so was Bertha's mom. But both women were born in Vermont, and their families were part of a French-Canadian community here that ran deep.
3: We grew up, you see, and we knew so many people on both sides. Oh, yes. So we was all just like um, one big family, you know? Yeah. We
2: just knew everybody, and we
3: treated everybody the same. Mm.
2: Today, the women can switch from English to French as easily as they used to cross the border. Here's Simon.
3: Mon nom is Simon Fortin, je reste à Halen. C'est à peu près 1000 des lignes du Canada. we on a tout bien arrangé avec nos voisins. Il y a plusieurs qui sont canadiens. And I just love being in Vermont. <laughs> I said my name is Simon Fortin. I I was born in, I always lived in Vermont, and our parents were from Canada, but they moved to Vermont, and we all love
2: it. Vermont's border towns weren't the only communities that attracted French-Canadian families. In fact, there was a time when it was totally normal to hear French spoken in some of Vermont's biggest cities. This month on the podcast, we explore that history. (laughs) From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm your host, Angela Edmensee. Here on the show, we answer questions about Vermont that have been submitted and voted on by you, our audience. This month... What is
4: the history of the French-Canadian immigration into Vermont?
5: I think it's more of an underground awareness. The locals seem to know, but uh, the general public doesn't seem to know.
2: We take on a few of your questions about this history, including questions about anglicized names and discrimination. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund, and this music is by the Addison County Trio Va et Bien. We have more tunes from them and the group Jeter le Pont
6: later on. Welcome! Thanks to Vida for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vida has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive from agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. One of our question askers
2: this month is Marsha White. I am from Gardner, Massachusetts.
4: And my specific question was, what is the background of the name changes, the anglicization of the French
2: Canadian names when they immigrated to Vermont? Marcia is a retired administrative assistant. But her true passion, she calls it an obsession, is genealogy.
4: I was a founding member of a genealogy society
2: here in Gardner in 1993. Marcia has followed her own family line back to England, Scotland, and France.
4: And one day I just was tired of looking at mine and my mind was spinning. So I thought, why don't I check my husband's? And so I just started looking into it and started pulling down all these names and such.
2: Her husband's mom, her mother-in-law, was born in Waterbury, Vermont. Her name was Ruth Tatro. T-A-T-R-O. The Tatro family knew it had some French-Canadian roots, but Marcia was the one to figure out the original spelling of the name.
4: T-E-T-R-E-A-U-L-T.
2: Marsha traced two other branches of the family back to Canada as well. One was Kirby. Assume Kirby
4: was Irish. <laughs> Wrong. It's <laughs> C-O-R-B-E-I-L. The other was Demis. And I searched for years <laughs> and finally made a connection with Demar, D-E-M-E-R-S.
2: Marcia figures her husband's forebears changed their names for ease of pronunciation. But she wants to know more about how and why this Anglicization happened.
6: Well, okay, so there's a whole bunch of reasons why names got changed and it wasn't always on purpose. This is Susan Woollett. She
2: teaches American history at St. Michael's College in Colchester, and she's going to be our historical guide
6: through this episode. The French-Canadian history of Vermont is very rich and textured, and I don't think that people give it the kind of attention that it deserves. We'll hear lots more from
2: Susan. But first, my colleague Henry Epp, is going to introduce us to a few Vermonters who are actively tracking their French-Canadian ancestry, just like our question asker, Marsha.
0: They're members of the Vermont French-Canadian Genealogy Society in Colchester, where they met on a recent Saturday. The group owns volumes of records, allowing members to trace their heritage back hundreds of years, but they often run into an early hurdle.
6: We find when we're tracing our families that The last names are changed so often, you have to discover what the real name is.
0: And how do you find that? How do you figure it out? (laughs) That's Marge Allard. I met her at the Genealogy Society along with fellow members Janet Allard and Sue Valley. Sue speaks fluent French and does a lot of translating for the society, and she has a method for finding the roots of Anglicized names.
7: If I sit with someone who speaks French like I do, uh, we'll just throw the name back and forth and back and forth and we'll say, well, okay, what happens with this vowel, you know? The vowel sound in French compared to the vowel sound in English, and eventually, yeah, it comes up.
0: So, can you think of an example of What like that really changed?
7: What about the one you were doing this morning? Yeah, well, okay, so Mr. Watso <laughs> <laughs> uh, ended up, W-A-T-S-O, well the original name is W A T Z E A U. Whatso so.
0: But often it's not just a change in spelling. Many French names were directly translated into English.
7: Saint Peter's Saint Pierre mm-hmm. or Rock. Oui, La Roche. Mm-hmm. La Rochelle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mr Little would have been Monsieur Petit. Le Grand, the tall one, you know. Seymour is really not Seymour, it's Cinq Mars, mm-hmm. the 5th of March. C-I-N-Q oh, and yeah. M-A-R-S. Cinq yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: in some cases, translating or altering a name may have been intentional. That was likely the case for one of the society's founders, John Fisher. Like,
8: my name was, was uh, Poisson. My dad changed it to Fisher. So. Like, so
0: Poisson, like fish in French. Yes. One possible factor for John's father, he was running a business.
6: I don't know that people necessarily felt the need to translate their names unless they had ambitions of middle-class status.
0: Again, Susan Willett, the history professor at St. Mike's.
6: But a lot of this, I think, happened organically.
0: Susan says while some people handpicked their new names, others didn't really have a choice in the matter. It was done for them through the federal census, which really ramped up in 1850.
6: Census takers were hired to go out and canvass neighborhoods and write down the information about the various populations of people that they were counting.
0: And the average census taker didn't speak French.
6: And he would ask, you know, who lived here? And he'd write down what he heard, which meant that often there would be a kind of um, corrupted transference of what the name was.
0: So, for example...
6: A guy, his name is Jean-Baptiste Vienne Lumiere.
0: But when the census taker heard that...
6: He wrote down, John Lumen.
0: And that, mesdames et messieurs, is Anglicization.
6: So, some of this is accidental. Uh, some of it is a product of linguistic misunderstandings and illiteracy, and some of it was deliberate, but not so much as you would think.
2: It makes sense that there are lots of reasons French-Canadian names got changed, because there have been many chapters of French-Canadian immigration into Vermont. It's not one stream. Susan Ouellette, our history guide, says French Canadians have been in this region since before the American Revolution. She says they've come in different waves over the centuries. And the biggest wave was probably during industrialization, in the heart of the 1800s.
6: I think most people who think about this, that's that's the wave that gets recognized. It was significant.
2: By 1860, more than 16,000 French Canadians were living in Vermont
6: more than double any other state in New England. So for instance, Nathaniel Hawthorne, who visited Burlington in 1841, I think, basically wrote in his travel log that if he wasn't positive
2: that the Burlington waterfront was indeed in America, he'd think he was in Canada.
6: Because there were so many French people and Canadian money and everyone around him were speaking French.
2: Burlington and Winooski and Manchester had the jobs that drew
6: people here. There was work in and around the mills and factories that were cranking at the time. And so that's not lost on French Canadians. And they're not far away. Susan says it was most common for young girls to take
2: jobs in the mills. And mill owners actually preferred immigrants to the so-called
6: Yankee girls. Yankee girls saw themselves as deserving more respect and better pay and better treatment than the mill owners actually wanted to give. So when immigrants began to show up, including French Canadians, factory owners start to see here is a population of people that they can use to kind of edge out the more annoying Yankee girls who were making demands. And once one family member got a job down in Vermont, others would usually follow. The function these days doesn't have quite the positive ring to it, but it's a kind of chain migration. My grandfather came down to work in the mill. They had
9: relatives here. My grandfather's brother was here, and there were other people from my grandmother's hometown, which was
2: Cap-Sante, very near Quebec City. This is a woman named Claire Chase, talking about how her family congregated in Winooski, This interview was recorded by the Vermont Folklife Center back in 1995.
9: You know, it was a case of where cousins would say, you know, we're here,
6: come down, you know, there's work here. Uh, We have our own church, we have our own school. So there were these little islands of French culture and society. Again, here's Susan. Little Canadas is what they were called. The grocer and... All of the local businesses were probably also operated by French Canadians. Uh, the undertaker was French, the, the shoemaker was French, and so you didn't need to learn English unless you had to.
9: As a matter of fact, the first six years of my life were lived entirely in French and had absolutely no contact with anyone else who were not Franco-Americans.
2: Mm-hmm. Eventually, the main flow of French Canadians shifted from Vermont to other New England states, leaving us with the smallest percent of the region's population by 1930. But the little Canada of Winooski held on to its French Canadian heritage, and you can still find it today if you know where to look. Here's Henry again.
0: If you live in the area, you may know Winooski best for its sometimes harrowing traffic circle right in the center of downtown. Nearby are the Winooski Falls, the power source for the mills worked by many French-Canadian immigrants like Rita Martel's parents. And my mother went to work there at the age of 12. Rita is in her 80s. She's the former president of the Winooski Historical Society, and she remembers the almost comical lengths her family would go to to keep their jobs. My grandmother would dress them
4: to look more mature than their age, but then they would get caught and they would get fired. That grandmother would redesign their style, make this a little bit bigger, and down they go, (laughs) and
0: um, get rehired. Rita says the mills created a tight-knit community.
4: It was a neighborhood in itself. People supported one another. They had a lot of conflicts, but they were able to iron it out,
0: discuss it. The mills closed in the 1950s. Now, the remaining buildings house condos and offices and restaurants. But for decades, they were the economic engine behind a bustling French-Canadian community. A central part of that community, St. Francis Xavier Church, up the hill from downtown. Outside that church, I met two local history buffs, Joe Perrin and Kim Chase. Hi. Hi. Are you Kim? I'm Kim. Joe? Hi. Hi, I'm Henry. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hi, Hi, you. Henry. Hi, Joe. Kim is the daughter of Claire Chase, whom we heard from earlier speaking about growing up in Winooski. Joe is the new president of the local historical society, and he also grew up here. They both point out that Winooski was not exclusively French-Canadian.
9: Um, there were also, you know, Poles, there were, you know, Lebanese, Italians, Irish, obviously. I mean, uh, anybody I'm forgetting? Syrians. Syrians, yep. Mm-hmm.
0: Kim and Joe don't have the exact numbers, but of all those groups, French Canadians were the largest, and St. Francis Church was built through many small donations from working-class families. We're looking up at the church, a tall, red brick structure with two steeples topped with aging copper, and they feature some details that Joe points out to me.
1: Do you see where the louvered parts are? That one, they're all gone there, but if you look up on that left one, Uh each one of them has a little Canadian maple leaf on it.
0: St. Francis Parish was established in 1868, as many new families arrived from Quebec. And Joe and Kim say given the prominence of the Catholic Church in Quebec at that time, it was crucial to establish a French parish with French-speaking priests.
1: It was not only worshipping in in their native language, but it was also to be able to receive the sacraments. So if they were to go, as you said, to the Sacrament of Reconciliation Confession, that would be important to have a, a French-speaking priest, but also uh, marriages, uh, baptisms, funerals, all of the social events that centered around the, the church, they would really appreciate, really yeah, life events. Life
9: events.
0: We walk through the sanctuary, which is lined by colorful frescoes and intricate stained glass.
1: Joe says this served as a sort of beacon back to Quebec. People who had established themselves in Winooski would, would tell, relatives in Canada, well, hey, it's not so bad here. And this was one of the ways that they could make it appealing is that we we have a a beautiful French parish here where you can come and worship. You won't have to sacrifice all of your culture by coming here.
0: Next door to the church is another landmark of French-Canadian Winooski, St. Francis Xavier School. It was founded in 1862 and run for many years by the Sisters of Providence. Their former convent is across the street.
1: The French-speaking The population of Winooski thought it was more important to have a school built before they had a church built, because if they had a school, they could preserve the language. When I went to St. Francis, I uh, started in 46,
5: they taught half a day in French, half a day in English every day of the week.
8: That's
0: Tom DeVarney. I met him back at that genealogy class in Colchester. As Tom tells it, into the 1960s, school subjects were pretty evenly divided between French and English.
5: The French side was catechism, Bible history, art, French grammar, French literature. Okay, English was geography, history, uh, English literature, science, whatever. So it was like, you got two parts of your... Psyche, this is this and this is that.
0: Sue Valley is also from the Genealogy Society. She grew up in Winooski and went to St. Francis around the same time as Tom. She also spoke French at home, but in a dialect her teachers didn't like.
7: But once you got into the classroom, the teacher wanted you to, quote, pronounce the French language correctly, right? So we couldn't use the dialect.
0: So at home it was sort of a, a Quebec dialect?
7: It was the original French from France, which was a 1600 French. It was 17th century French. But at school, the nuns, you know, I'd get my hand smacked if I said moi instead of moi, for example, just an, an example. But then when I got to high school with the Irish nuns, <laughs> I got thrown out of French class because I was fooling around. And so uh, I was told, uh, what would you like? I said, give me Spanish. And so I ended up, I ended up majoring in Spanish and teaching French and Spanish for 30 years.
0: (laughs) Anyways, back outside St. Francis School, Kim Chase says having bilingual classes not only preserved French, it also helped older generations who didn't speak English.
9: My grandmother did not speak any English and and was illiterate. um, So that was important in that she had to kind of try to learn English by pretending to help our kids with their homework.
0: (laughs) But like we heard before from Kim's mother, Claire, English fluency wasn't really necessary in Winooski.
9: The French Canadians had their own bubble. I mean, it was very much um, self-sufficient.
0: And Joe Perrin adds it wasn't always the French Canadians that had to learn a new language.
1: A lot of the the English speakers in Winooski had to learn French if they wanted to be successful in business. I think it prompted some bilingualism on the part of the so-called Yankees as well.
0: But not all so-called Yankees were so open-minded. What it was like for French Canadians elsewhere in Vermont, right after this.
2: We just heard about this kind of happy bilingualism that French Canadians in Winooski enjoyed. But it wasn't like that everywhere.
5: My grandmother, she was first generation and, uh, and she was told that she was not to speak French.
2: Francis Tenney is another question asker we talked to this month. He's from Northfield, and he told us about his grandmother Doris, who grew up in St. Albans.
5: And the reason she was not to speak French in her own house was because with the French dialect, they would treat her differently than they would be with somebody that spoke an English accent.
2: Francis wanted to know more about the discrimination that some French Canadians faced in Vermont and why it isn't talked about more.
5: It's just been swept under the rug. You know, I don't want to, what happened in the past, I can't change, but it's like, come on guys, we, we've we all got skeletons in the closet, and it's time that we let things go as long as we're not still going in that bad direction.
2: Yeah, basically, acknowledge the history and go from there.
5: Exactly.
1: What about your identity as a Franco-American? You know, could you... I realize there's lots you
8: can say. <laughs> Where to begin, huh?
2: This is a woman named Martha Pellerin talking to the late great folklorist Greg Sherrow in 1997. Martha was a collector of Franco American song and a musician herself. She was actually in Jeterre Le Pont, one of the bands we're featuring in this episode. She grew up in Barrie, and hearing her talk about her childhood you get the sense that Francis's grandmother, Doris, would have been able to relate. This recording comes to us from the Vermont Folklife Center, and we've edited it for length.
8: To be a first-generation Franco-American, basically you deal with most of your life, lots of cultural conflicts that, you know, before you're 20, you know, when you're in high school, even 16, 15 years old, you're, you're pretty burnt out because you're continuously giving mixed messages. In graded school you're told not to speak French. You get to high school and you have to take a second language and suddenly it's important to know French. And you've almost lost all your French already because you've tried so hard to, you know, to do right, to, you know, to do the right thing. Then you get into high school and they're like... <laughs> Take you should take French. And then you get into French class and, and you figure you're gonna get an easy A and you come out with a D because they don't like the way you speak French. Uh, you know, so no matter what, it's always in a situation where you always feel inadequate. You never quite feel like you get it you get it all together. You know? And I'm sure that's the same with lots of first generation ethnic anybody. I don't not, I'm sure it's not just an experience that Frankel's had.
2: Martha was aware of the universality of her experience, that back and forth between two cultures, that for her was difficult. And because French Canadians and Franco-Americans were minorities in Vermont, they were also subjected to more organized discrimination. Professor Susan
6: Willette is going to talk us through two forms that it took. Okay, so the KKK in Vermont had a fairly short-lived presence. So let me talk about that first. You
2: might think of the Ku Klux Klan as a group that only targets African Americans. But historically, it was against a whole range of minorities, including Catholics.
6: And it's the anti-Catholic language that really affected French Canadians because they were Catholic.
2: Susan says the Ku Klux Klan comes to Vermont in the 1920s and begins trying to
6: recruit people. Vermonters are, generally speaking, I think they're really torn. There are people who begin to be attracted to the message of the Klan, which at that point is very xenophobic. The anti- African-American aspect of it is less of an issue here because there aren't large populations of black folks. So it's the anti-Catholic, anti-Jewish aspect of the Klan that really appeals. But there's uh, uh, also people who are very um, stridently opposed. A scholar named Mark Paul Richard writes
2: about this in his book, Not a Catholic Nation, The Ku Klux Klan Confronts New England in the 1920s. Mark didn't want to be interviewed for this episode, but his book is really interesting. He digs up all these newspaper editorials, just roasting the Klan for things like bigotry and lawlessness. But that said, the group did have a foothold in the state, and hoods were donned and crosses burned. In July of 1924, there was a cross burning at the Catholic Cemetery in Montpelier. Frances Annan's Carver was a young girl at the time, and here's what she wrote about it years later.
4: My bedroom window faced the hill on which St. Augustine's cemetery rested. One night I reached to draw the curtain before retiring and was terrorized by a massive cross in raging flames and white-hooded maniacs prancing around it. It was many years before the nightmares ceased. I was a Catholic And in my childish mind, I relived the horror and felt sure they were coming after me.
2: The KKK was also officially opposed to drinking, so their reputation in the state took a hit when a group of Klansmen got drunk and broke into a cathedral in Burlington, also in 1924.
6: You can read all about it in Mark's book. Susan knows the story, too. Eventually, These guys were caught and prosecuted. Um, And I think that it really uh, made it clear to a lot of Vermonters that the Klan really wasn't uh, an organization that was about uh, sobriety and purity and and so on. And basically, by 1925, 1926, it's not a vibrant organization. However, at around the same time, A second form of
2: persecution came along that targeted minorities in Vermont, the eugenics movement.
6: The eugenics movement um, was a far more subtle and perhaps more damaging kind of misplaced pseudoscience, I guess is the way I would describe it. This is something that another question asker, Diane
2: Alberts of Rutland, asked us about. Eugenics in Vermont was championed by a zoology professor at the University of Vermont named Henry F. Perkins. Here's
6: Susan. So the idea was you didn't want people who were considered to be um, substandard people to reproduce, because then that would diminish the vigor among American
2: people. We've covered this disturbing history in a previous episode about the Abenaki Native Americans. They were persecuted, along with poor people and the so-called feeble-minded. People who were considered marginal were sterilized, so they wouldn't have kids. The idea was to combat poverty and address, quote, degeneracy.
10: There was this idea around from state leaders that the cause of these failures in Vermont were due to this incoming foreign uh, weaker element, so to say.
2: Last year, a Dartmouth College senior named Mercedes de Guardiola wrote her senior thesis about Vermont's eugenics movement. She talked to VPR's show Vermont Edition about it. Mercedes said that Henry Perkins didn't actually
10: target French Canadians in the way he did other groups. He definitely does in some of his letters say that he doesn't quite think that they're the root of this degeneracy. And even if French Canadians were targeted for sterilizations, it's hard to determine to what extent because... A lot of these records from institutions have been lost, and there's issues with the sterilization records we have now.
2: At the very least, Mercedes said French Canadians were subjected to anti-immigrant sentiment, not from the KKK this time, but from people who believed in the purported science of eugenics.
10: Most Vermonters, especially state leaders and institutional officials who were supporters of the eugenical movement, we uh, were fairly biased against French Canadians like other immigrant groups, kind of again getting back to this kind of foreign weaker element. Mercedes' full interview
2: with Vermont Edition is definitely worth a listen, especially if you weren't aware of this history. Susan Ouellette says it's not exactly a story that gets top billing.
6: I think it's not a proud moment in the state's history, and I think it's one that um, people would happily forget.
0: There's another reason French Canadians may have been misunderstood or looked down upon by so-called Yankees. Susan puts it this way. In the mid-20th century, the definition of success for a white, middle-class Vermonter
6: would have been, for instance, education, maybe white-collar occupation, achieving homeownership, a better life for your children. All of those things would have been really important hallmarks of your success.
0: But Susan says for French Canadians, that measure of success was a little different.
6: Family and large family and integrated family was a much, much greater value to them. And so one of the reasons why these communities were so vibrant and so interconnected was because of these large families that were figured far more horizontally than vertically.
0: And beyond the extended family, Kim Chase, back in Winooski, says there was a commitment to building institutions for the community.
9: I don't think they were flaunting, but they certainly were proud of what they could put together. And just one thing that French Canadians were criticized for, is they, they, they never want to get anywhere socially. like They just don't. And, and so that, you know, trying to compare this Yankee mentality of, you know, this, this social ladder, it has nothing to do with French culture. Like, for the most part, it's if everybody's fed and we're together
2: and people are getting along, then everything is good. <laughs> Back in Derby Line, Bertha Patnode pulls out an old school photo from the days when her now-husband Albert was in class with Simone, just east of here, in the town of Holland.
5: It
3: was Marcel, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. Teresa. Teresa. that was Esther, Teresa.
2: Albert points Merle. people out, many of them now deceased.
3: Bertha, yeah. Merle, Merle. More. More. Yeah. And but
2: new generations are coming up right behind. Bertha and Albert have 6 kids and 12 grandkids and 7 great-grandkids. They babysit their grandson Aiden 3 days a week. What kind of tractor is that?
3: Oh,
7: New
2: Holland. New
7: Holland. That's what my dad drives.
2: Yeah. A few years ago Bertha and Albert sold their family businesses to Aiden's parents, and now Jason and Allison Pattonode run the excavating outfit. And Sweet Meadows maple products. After we finish talking, we drive down the road to the sugar house, where Jason and a few of his employees and buddies are getting ready to boil sap. His parents take in the scene with
5: pride.
2: A few more relatives join in the mix, including a son and a great granddaughter. This is clearly a family operation. And Jason says he's proud to be carrying it forward.
10: A lot of people call it a hobby for us. It's, it is, but it's more of a way of life, you know. It's something we've always done, and we take a lot of pride in, you know, making maple syrup. That is
2: cool. Back at the house, Bertha and Albert and Simone had told me that crossing the border into Canada isn't as easy as it was when they were kids. They said things really changed after 9-11. So they don't go there as much as they used to but they also don't really need to. For the most part, their families are here now. Thanks so much for listening to the show this month. Henry Epp reported this episode with me. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund and from VPR members. If you like this show, head to bravelittlestate.org donate to show your support. The archival recordings of Claire Chase and Martha Pellerin were used courtesy of the Vermont Folklife Center. To access these and other recordings in their archive, find them online at vermontfolklifecenter.org. Special thanks this month to Andy Kolovis, Madeline Winterfalcon, Lynn Johnson, Ed McGuire, Scott Wheeler, Suzanne Germain, Ian Drury, Betty Smith, and Kari Anderson. Our editor is Lynn McCrae, and we have engineering support from Chris Albertine. Our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode by Va et Viens, Je Terre le Pont, Blue Dot Sessions, and Poddington Bear. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back next month with a question about aging hippies. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions.
5: At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's through line wherever you get your podcasts.